0: We're going to talk about the terms of this theory, critical social justice. We are going to look at some of the strategies. Then we're going to take a short look at the worldview. And then we're going to look at how some of the ways the Bible speaks truth into justice and gives us a different view of what justice looks like and why critical race, critical social justice are not biblical. All right, so the first part of this, we are going to talk about 14 different terms. We're not going to spend much time on each of them. I just want to introduce them to you if you've never seen them before. And what they do is they redefine things for us. Terms are very, very effective in just shaping truth or propaganda, shall we say, for people, right? So we need to look at terms. Some of these terms are terms we have had all along and they've just been redefined in a new way and we didn't even realize that they were redefined. Some of these terms are brand new. We've never heard them before. And all of them together kind of give us a little story, a little window into what is going on in our world. And how the lies spread through culture because existing terms are subtly being redefined and new terms introduced. All right, so here we go. First one, intersectionality. I actually have an illustration of this that I took from my daughter's Edsby uh, to show you. But intersectionality, as I said already, was introduced by Kimberly Crenshaw back in 1989. This is nothing new, but it is kind of new to us. We're learning about this now. Uh, These are the many, it's describing the many layers of discrimination and privilege uh, that people might have in their lives. So it's one thing to have a certain color of skin, it's another thing to have a certain gender and a certain color of skin, or to identify as a different gender than your biological gender and so on. And certain color of skin, and so on. You can have three, four, five, multiple layers of intersectionality where all these intersections or layers of oppression meet. So here's a picture of what our high school youth are learning. And from what I understand, this is nothing new. This has been around for a long time. And yes, this is our Windsor-Essex public school board race, ethnicity, gender identity, class, language, religion, ability, uh, sexuality, mental health, age, education, body size, and many more, of course. I'm sure they're still coming up with terms. But you get the idea. And from the graph that you see there, you could be any color within that graph, depending on where you're at uh, and depending on how powerful or how oppressed you are. By the way, just a side note on this. What do you think this teaches young people? It certainly doesn't teach them to overcome challenges. It does teach them to look at themselves as victims and see on a scale of one to a hundred where you lie as a victim. And then how much self-pity you might be able to get. I mean, there's a number of ways you can look at this. You just wonder, where is this teaching going to lead? Where is this going? Intersectionality. Second one is colorblind. Well, that's interesting because I think I remember uh, the Christian group DC Talk had a song called Colorblind. Do you remember that song? Some of you do. And uh, I thought it was a good song. I thought it was a good thing to be colorblind, right? To not... To, to judge people by their character and not by the color of their skin. That's the way it used to be defined. Not influenced by differences of race, especially free from racial prejudice. But it has now been redefined as not seeing race. In other words, ignoring the oppression around you and others. Denying, living in denial and so on. So colorblind today, if, if someone tells you you're colorblind, that's not a good thing. It used to be a good thing. It's a bad thing now. Number three, whiteness, All right? Dictionary definition, the quality or state of being white. The fact or state of belonging to a human group having light-colored skin. The anti-racist redefinition of this term has to do with a set of normative privileges granted to white-skinned individuals and groups. And groups, that's key, by the way. Groups, not just individuals, groups, which is invisible to those privileged by it. Notice that again, white people are incapable of objective truth, it's invisible to them, right? You see that? Number four, white privilege. So the anti-racist definition, we're getting into new terms here, but this again, this is where Peggy McIntosh wrote a book on this, uh, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Notice again, the word invisible. Uh, a set of unearned advantages that whites experience relative to non-whites and I'm getting this from an official definition here by virtue of their skin color. Now this one I'm going to pause and I'm going to show you a video of a very well-respected evangelical preacher. Most of you know who Matt Chandler is. And I respect him in many, many ways. I've read some of his books. I remember reading Explicit Gospel, which was a tremendous book. I thought it was great, very helpful to me, and would still recommend it today. But I want to try and show just how pervasive this kind of teaching has gotten into evangelical churches. Even many that we would say are very orthodox in their beliefs. So Matt Chandler was part of the Young, Restless, and Reformed group who kind of made the idea of being of the Reformed category cool again. Um, I don't know, a decade ago maybe, Um, and and very effective as a speaker. But notice what he's saying now. There's a lot to unpack there, and I I wasn't planning to unpack it. I was planning merely to demonstrate how far this has gotten into the church did you notice and as you start to hear terms that he's saying you're starting to realize this guy's been reading critical writers (laughs) then you start to ask where's he getting his truth is it from the bible or is it from this invisible knapsack type language going on here there's a lot in that that I, we may get into a little bit later on about when he's talking about how he learned about people that looked like him and so on. And um, wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, because I, I don't remember history being like that. Like I, I did learn about uh, the Métis people and about indigenous people and so on in school. Um, And back when I was in school, it was quite a bit different then, too. It wasn't like it is with my kids in school now and so on. I don't know exactly where he's getting everything he's talking about. Plus, I'm pretty sure most of you grew up... Well, not most of you. I don't know where you're at with your age. But like the 80s, the 90s, to say that all the TV shows were people that looked like Matt Chandler is a bit of a falsehood, don't you think? Like, my kids uh, love watching the Cosbys right now. I'm sorry, I'm not getting into the Bill Cosby issue here. But as a show, it's a very wholesome show. Um, and they love it. And we don't have to talk about skin color. It's it's not about that at all. We enjoy it. We enjoy the morals that we're showing and and, and so on. But anyways, a lot of what he's saying is, Interesting, I'd love to engage with it and say, what do you mean by that? Can you clarify some of that? Um, I don't know. Anyways, it is what it is, but you can see how this idea of white privilege coming in from Peggy McIntosh and the invisible, the bag of invisible tools and so on that I can pull out at any time. By the way, what did that mean? I don't know what that means. Like, if you lose your job... I don't know. I, obviously, conversations have to happen and so on, but I'm not sure what he meant that you can just reach into this invisible ba- visible bag and pull out a tool and fix the problem based on skin color. I'm not sure. And again, different ethnicities in the room here, and I'd love to hear, uh, and this is how I teach my own kids. My daughter goes to a school where she is a minority. She is a minority. And I've told her from day one, celebrate that. Lean into it ask questions from other cultures. I hired a number of young men from the country of India in my last position as a manager of a controls department and uh, tried to train them, tried to help them out where I could. Some of them were new to the country. Their parents were on the other side of the world. They're trying to eventually make enough money to get their parents over here and so on. And just asking them questions about their culture and their ethnicity and how their families work and, and so on. It was fascinating learning from other cultures and things like that. Um, but to suggest that somehow we have an invisible bag and so on um, as a blanket statement is needs some clarification, I think. But you can see where he's been reading. And I think the biggest issue I have with what Chandler is saying in that is where he's getting his information. Is this from the word of God or did he get a new canon of scripture? And we need to be very clear on that. Uh, So that's just an an example of how it is infiltrating the church in a major way. We're gonna notice that in a little bit. Uh, The next one, white supremacy. Again, this used to be the belief that white people are superior to those of all other races and should therefore dominate society. So we used to look at the KKK and neo-Nazis and so on as holding this fringe view and and say, you guys are just downright evil. But today, it is redefined as beliefs, behaviors, or systems which perpetuate white privilege. And so it infiltrates everything, all existing institutions in Western culture. Therefore, they must be taken down, they must be revolutionized, and so on, because they are completely infected with white supremacy. Uh, white complicity is the next one. All right, so what is white complicity? It is basically all white people are guilty, are complicit in this for going along with it. So you can't escape your guilt. You're guilty for being born with a specific skin color. White people, through the practices of whiteness and by benefiting, from, uh, I'm reading a writer, uh, Applebaum here, by benefiting from white privilege, contribute to the maintenance of systematic racial injustice. So just by living in this world and going about your daily business, you are guilty. You are complicit in your white privilege and white supremacy, whether you knew it or not. Okay, So at this point, how are you supposed to feel based on your skin color? Okay, so if you have white skin, generally you're supposed to feel guilty, right? You're supposed to have a load of guilt, and that is exactly what they're looking for. The next one is white equilibrium. Vaudi uh gives us a good definition, the belief system that allows white people to remain comfortably ignorant. So in other words... We gotta keep our balance here, right? We don't want to get off balance with these ideas that we are white supremacists and guilty, complicit in our guilt and so on. Uh, so basically, we want to remain comfortably ignorant. White equilibrium. The next one is white fragility. Maybe you've heard this term. This term is used a lot by the media. And again, Balcom helps us with this, the inability and unwillingness of white people to talk about race due to the grip that whiteness, white supremacy, white privilege, white complicity, and white equilibrium exert on them, knowingly or unknowingly. So it's the inability, the unwillingness of white people to talk about race due to the grip that whiteness has on them and so on. Don't wanna talk about it. So therefore, at this point, you can't win by denying or by saying, no, I don't think all institutions are inherently racist. I don't think police officers are all inherently racist. There might be be ones that are and discriminatory and so on inside police forces and there may need to be reform and so on, but I don't believe they need to be revolutionized or defunded or destroyed and so on. By saying that, you're just expressing your white fragility. So you can't win. The next one is, and this is where we get into the subjective or experiential truth, legal storytelling. The next two, this one is legal storytelling. The next one is counter storytelling. And legal storytelling implies or assumes that the justice system of Western society is set up to oppress minorities. And is set up as well to alleviate the pain of those of white skin, Anglo people, and so on. So what we need is we need minorities to be writing and telling of their experiences in the legal system and how it is inherently racist and so on. And this is called legal storytelling. It's a movement that urges black and brown writers. Again, this is Delgado and Stefanski talking about this. To recount their experiences with racism and the legal system and to apply their own unique perspective to assess the law's master narratives. Because, after all, being a lawyer and so on, you have to learn how to tell a story and tell it well enough to sell it to a jury and things like that. This one is interesting because if you go back and read how they treated justice, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas when he was nominated for his role, you'd wonder, you'd wonder if they really believe what they say that the legal system is inherently racist. They were vicious. And that had nothing to do with his skin color by the way, it had everything to do with his politics or his beliefs and his conservative views. Counter-storytelling is along the same lines. It's basically writing that aims to cast doubt on the validity of accepted premises or myths, uh, especially ones held by the majority. So in other words, and in fact, um, my daughter's high school teacher said this. She said to the class, you've never actually read good literature because all the literature you've ever read is by is written by white, oppressive, cisgender males. And apparently that's true, according to her. I'm just wondering if she's read any of these stories. So I don't know how you get the oppression out of it. But it's interesting how the author's skin color has everything to do with the literature and the validity of whether it's a quality work or not, and so on. But that's what counter-storytelling is. And what they're trying to introduce is you need to hear stories from minorities. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it doesn't have to be at the expense of authors of different skin colors, especially those who had Christian views of the world. Number 11, interest convergence, which explains why there are obviously... People of color and minorities that hold high positions of office, obviously the President of the United States just recently, right, was African-American. You look at celebrities, you look at the, you know, different sports worlds and so on. Well, they explain it, uh, basically, again, they explain it, that this interest convergence hypothesis that Derek Bell, the founder of CRT, came up with is that whites allow breakthroughs for blacks only when it serves the whites' interests. So in other words, they only allow it to happen when it serves them well. So that's what interest convergence means when they talk about that, only when it serves the interests of the Hegemony, right? The dominant people. And uh, anti-racism, okay, now we're getting down to kind of a summary term here. Um, So basically, you're not allowed to be not a racist. You can't make that claim. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi, maybe you've heard that term. He wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He said, what's the problem with being not racist? It is a claim that signifies neutrality. I am not a racist, but neither am I aggressively against racism. But there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. The opposite of racist is not not racist, it is anti-racist. So in other words, if you don't want to be a white supremacist, you must aggressively pump your fist in the air, take the knee, devalue your country, no longer sing the national anthem, and, uh, and, and spread the propaganda and be an activist, and so on. So you can't win. Uh, number 13, uh, the term racist has changed. There's an evolution to this term over time. In fact, there's been a big movement to change the definition in uh, dictionaries. So it used to be that the dictionary showed a uh, definition that had to do with the individual as a racist. But now they have added a second definition due to the cultural changes or the cultural shift relating to or characterized by the systematic oppression of a racial group to the social, economic, and political advantage of another. The idea is racism is no longer the individual's responsibility. It is institutional. It is in the institutions. Therefore, again, the institutions must be taken down. I could uh, look more at that, but we've got to move on here. Time is not our friend. Uh, the next one is Black Lives Matter now. We're in the world of hashtags. Don't you love the world of hashtags? Hashtags are a wonderful tool for saying nothing with almost nothing, basically. But, uh, like, love is love. I, I have no clue what that means. You just define something with itself. Which reminds me of Ivram X. Kendi's uh, definition of racism when he said a collection, his definition of racism was a collection of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist, racist ideas. Very uh, peculiar definition of something by itself, basically. Uh, it's the same thing with hashtags. They, don't always say things, but Black Lives Matter is particularly important that we understand what it means. It's not just a term. It is an organization. It is a Marxist utopian system. Now, they have removed from their website what used to be a section called What We Believe. I'm not going to read it all. We don't have time. There is an archived version of this. Some had the foresight to know that they were going to remove it from their website because of the black backlash, uh, and so archived it for all to see. So it is out there on the web for you to see, but many of the things in it that they talk about has nothing to do with, it, I guess partially, but the idea of black lives mattering is is somewhat a side issue to everything else on their agenda. I'm just going to read part of it. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. Okay, I need to unpack that for a minute because that is Marxist conversation. Those are all Marxist terms and Marxist language. What does the word village have to do with anything? Well, that's the idea of everybody belongs to everybody else. Which is what Aldous Huxley was talking about in uh, his book, Uh, Brave New World. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. By supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, notice this, Again, not fathers, because the patriarchal system of Western society that is built on Christian doctrine must be destroyed. No, no. We're going to say that we care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Notice who's missing? So the nuclear family of a mother and father in the home, with children... And a mother and father that live in covenant relationship with each other for life, they want to disrupt. That's the word they used. And then they say, we foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual. So it's far more than Black Lives Matter. That's the point. It's an organization that is pressing for a society uh, that is going to be self-destructive. And I can prove that, actually. I'm about to. All right, so we're going to move into... that. That's terms. Now we're going to move into strategies. And the strategy they use so often is emotion. Emotivism. What is emotivism? Well, it's the idea that you know you put emotion into a story suddenly facts are very cold and hard right we don't want facts because now we have emotions we have feelings in the story and people are victims and others are villains and so on and we want to side with the victims because we don't want to be a villain as well right we don't want to identify with the villains and so on so the power of emotions objective objectivity is diminished and subjectivity is elevated so we want to Suppress objective truth. And we're going to elevate subjective truth. In other words, people's experience. So if I walked in the room tonight and thought to myself, nobody's smiling. So the assumption is, they all hate me. I'm a victim. They all hate me. It's subjective truth. I've assumed something, right? That may or may not be true. I don't think it's true, by the way. Just an illustration. But the idea is, again, if, if I were to go now to my friends and say, you know, I was somewhere the other night, horrible audience. They all hated me. Really? Oh, that's a shame. Who were these people? They sound awful, right? And all of a sudden, we have subjectivity that's risen over objectivity instead of actually having a conversation and finding out you know what i had a horrible day at work my boss is telling me i'm i made lose my job because of vaccine passports and stuff so that's why i'm not smiling it has nothing to do with you well that sounds like objective truth right changes everything but they use the power of emotion how do they do that first of all by rewriting history i don't know if you've heard of the 1619 project Uh, founded by Nicole Hannah-Jones. She has since uh, come out and actually admitted that she got it wrong. But basically what she did was said that the U.S. was not founded on July 4th, 1776 with the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but it was founded on August 20th, 1619, the day 20 enslaved Africans first arrived in Virginia and basically rewrote history to prove that the U.S. is basically one big institution of slavery and repression and oppression and discrimination. It is racist right from the very fabric. Well, she has since come back after it's been debunked to not be historically true. uh, She has since admitted that what that she got it wrong. Not only that, many people ignore the African role in capturing and selling slaves. This is not in any way some kind of apologetic for slavery. But there is a a tree in Indola, Zambia, the Indola slave tree, that is a place, a, a memorial today that is set up. It was a meeting point for Swahili slave traders in Africa to discuss their transactions. You see, it wasn't white slave traders that went over there and went running through the jungles looking for people to enslave and then dragging them back in chains. No, no, they purchased them from African slave traders. So it was Africans enslaving Africans. It was hatred, absolutely. But we don't see that disgust in much of our history. No, no, all we ever hear about is the evil white man who enslaved the African, what we now know as African-Americans. None of that, we ignore the fact that instead of white people coming and creating genocide over Native Americans and indigenous people, there's much history to prove that Native Americans were killing each other long before the white man arrived. In fact, the numbers of Native Americans actually went up after colonialism not down you'd think with a genocide the numbers would go down they didn't none of that but throughout all the history that matt chandler was talking about where all he ever learned about were people that looked like him i learned about a lot of bad guys that looked like me too right some of those medieval kings were pretty wicked men and the queens some of the queens were pretty wicked too There's a lot of wickedness in history that needs to be taught. Okay, secondly, crime statistics. I got to move fairly fast at this point, but I want you to at least get a a glimpse at how they build these strategies. And of course, statistics can be used in many different ways. This is kind of the social science part of things. Um, But there are statistics that have come out. I've got, I think I have an article in my stack here from the Washington Post that actually talks about the fact that Uh, The studies that have been done, maybe I don't have it here, but I have it somewhere. The studies that have been done prove or show that white police officers are not more willing to shoot a black suspect than a white suspect. In fact, they are more hesitant to do so because they know the consequences are more severe for doing so. And that seems to stack up with reality. In fact, uh, there are stories of, Police officers that have endangered their lives for being far too hesitant to pull their firearm in a situation because of the hesitancy of knowing what will happen if if this goes badly. And that can be backed up and, and, uh, and recognized in the real stories that are told by the media and by our culture. Stories where... Narrations or narratives are distorted. The truth is distorted. Things are emphasized and implications are made as a result. In fact, conclusions are made before the facts even come out. And the emotions are high and rioting has already started. There has been nothing said about how it happened. The video hasn't even come out yet. This happens over and over and over. Um... Maybe I'll take uh, a couple of them here. Mario Woods, December 2015. Um, Again, the video is readily available. I think you can watch it. It is horrific, there's no doubt. Um, He was confronted, I think, by the San Francisco police after a stabbing. He had on him an eight-inch knife. He was armed. He was dangerous. They warned him. They shot him with bean bags, trying to stop him. He would not stop, he would not subdu- submit, and so on, and eventually they shot him. Now, they might have gone overboard, uh, and I'm not a police officer, so I don't know all the ins and outs of what they are trained to do. I remember talking to one of the Windsor police about this subject. In one of my recent interactions with the Windsor police, I'll leave that to your imagination, but it had something to do with harvest. But he was saying, you know, the Canadian police are trained much differently than the American police. He went over there for some training and he said, it's a very different world over there. So I'm not in any way trying to defend the police in anything tonight. I don't know enough about it to be able to. The point I'm trying to make is that these stories, before the the facts even came out, they had already started the protests and the riots and so on and the injustice of it all. And he was said to have been unarmed and so on. Um, Michael Brown was the one who was shot August 9th, 2014, that started the riots in Ferguson, Missouri. And the phrase that came out of that in the protest, hands up, don't shoot, came from the idea that Michael Brown had raised his hands and said, don't shoot, um, and that he was unarmed and not threatening and so on. But as the facts came out, uh, it it became apparent that he had, uh, the witness that had actually said that he had raised his hands and said, don't shoot, actually came out later and said that was false. Um, other witnesses said he had charged the police officer and so on. The police officer had no choice but to shoot him and, and so on. Tragic, yes. But again, you could see all the facts, were the, 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 the propaganda that was out there. The story was out before the facts had come in yet. And they didn't line up with reality. Truth was not there. How can you have justice without truth? In contrast, there's another young man who happened to be white. His name was Daniel Shaver who, I can't remember exactly when this was, I remember watching the video and being horrified by the video. He had been waving a BB gun out of a window of a motel. You don't see any of that. You don't see any of the context. But the police officers uh, that showed up on the scene, like it was a full-blown SWAT. And you see him in the hallway of the motel, and he's on his, he's on his knees, he's got his hands beyond his head, and the officers giving him these, distra- you, you can tell he's completely distraught. He's out of his mind terrified of what's going on and the officer keeps telling him, get down on your face and then crawl toward me and if you move one wrong way, I will shoot you and so on. And, and, and he's confused. You can tell he's, I'm not sure what you're asking me to do. And at one point, I don't know, I think he just kind of reached forward or something and the officer unloaded his gun on him. You never heard that story in the media. You, you can watch it. He, he actually did say, don't shoot. He was gunned down anyways, and the officer that gunned him down was later acquitted of second-degree murder. So he was let off for what he did, which is hard to believe after watching the video of what happened. The point being, again, you have two parallel stories. What's different between the stories? And yet, you see how certain narratives are shaped to try and carry a narrative that will, again, disarm and dismantle the institutions. Uh, Ahmad Arbery was another one, killed 2020 in Georgia, February 2020. Within the next 187 days, 11 other unarmed white men were killed by police without any mention in the press. I'm not going to go through their names, but they're there. Of course, George Floyd. Do you know there was another man that was... Killed in the very same way as George Floyd. His name was Tony Timpa. You can look him up on YouTube. The story is strangely parallel. In fact, Timpa actually called the police for help. He was off his meds. There was a knee and a hand on his back. The officers were laughing and mocking. He went unresponsive and they were mocking even further. Is he dead? Is he dead? One officer at one point said casually, I hope we didn't kill him. The officers were not arrested, nor were they charged. The point being, there's a narrative. There's a narrative being played. And the narrative, the idea of legal storytelling, to tell a story in a certain way, to get a certain result, doesn't line up with the facts. All right, the next one, moving very quickly here now. Hollywood's parables. This year especially, it seems like productions are coming out of Hollywood over and over again that show not really the hero, kind of like an anti-hero figure. Still the white man. The white man's still the figure. He's still there. But now he's just a bumbling fool. Notice he's male. He's man too, right? The patriarchy of the whole thing. The hero has become the challenge that must be overcome. So shows like Rutherford Falls and HBO's The White Lotus and Netflix's The Chair and so on. The hero has become the challenge that must be overcome. He's, he's not hated, he's pitied. Since he's too clueless to know how to navigate the culture, his family, and his privilege. So Hollywood is on board with this and creating all kinds of parables to try and teach these lessons to our young people. I haven't watched any of those shows, by the way. I just know that they exist The last one, the church's response. We already noticed from Matt Chandler some of the church's response. I think Matt Chandler is in the boat of being, um, the category of being sympathetic to this. Not totally on board. There are other uh, clergymen that are on board with it, not going to go into that. Um, Even Christianity Today coming out with a whole list of books that you need to read so that you are a good anti-racist and so on. Uh, But some are opposing this for the sake of the gospel. In fact, a statement was made, I think it was last year, uh, that is called the Statement on Social Justice in the Gospel. Uh, The nickname is the Dallas Statement because of where it was put together by men like Tom Askell and John MacArthur and Vody Balcom and others. Uh, That included the the following points. The Bible is the final authority of truth, not socially constructed standards of truth and morality and notions of virtue and vice and so on. The Bible is the final authority. No person is morally culpable of another person's sin. Therefore, I am not culpable for what my forefathers may have done which I'm not sure how that works because I think it was my great-grandparents came over from Scotland and England and so on. They weren't even here. Anyways, the the list goes on. You can read the statement yourself. You can look that up. It can be part of your homework. The interesting thing was, most things that John MacArthur does end up being like big controversy. So he does a strange fire conference and everybody's talking about it for like six months, right? Well, he's involved in this. This Dallas statement came out. I wasn't even aware of it. And it seemed like nobody answered. Nobody responded. Nobody's talking about it. It's like it's not even there. Go and read it. It's very biblical. Founded on the... And and their whole outlook, their whole goal was to just protect the gospel from anything that comes in to make it something that it's not. Well, I'm not going to go into uh, the critical social justice worldview. Okay, we looked at origin, meaning, morality, destiny last week. Um, I'm going to kind of leave that for you to do. That'll be your homework. Um, but I will say this, the, the, their worldview actually can be seen very clearly in a little project, in a little, pro- a little uh, test sample that they did for us last year 2020, known as CHAZ or CHOP, many of you know it, began June the 8th of 2020 in Seattle. They blocked off a section of the city as a protest against capitalism, police brutality, and the fascist regime. It was led by Black Lives Matter and Antifa, or anti-fascist activists, they set up a model. They set up a model of their social justice principles. Great. We get to finally see how it works out. This is great. Based on what they said was a reverse hierarchy of oppression. Good. Now we can see how you're going to solve the problem. Race-based segregation in public spaces and a police-free zone. Now, it's ironic because people who hate walls and guns used walls and guns to barricade and protect this new utopian movement. That's interesting. And in its 24 days of existence, there were two shooting homicides and four additional shootings. All of the victims were black males. In other words, it just became lawless and violent and gang-ridden. I thought all of this this type of worldview, this, this gospel that they're presenting was going to solve our problems. But it didn't. It was pretty clear. Well, let's turn to the Bible for a few minutes and go through some of the ways that Scripture speaks into this and maybe equip ourselves to be able to have conversations with people conversations that can open up again. We talked last week about asking good questions um, and getting to the heart of why people believe what they believe and why they think certain things are true and so on. Uh, The first thing we want to notice is the fact that Human value is defined by the imago Dei or the image of God, right? This goes back to Genesis 1 when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. By the way, this is one area we can agree with critical race theorists when they say race is made up. That's true. There is only one race. They actually say that. The problem is they go on to focus on multiple races and say if you don't focus on multiple races you're racist right which is ironic because they start with the the notion that there is one race and that other races are socially constructed now we would say there's one race many ethnicities or many cultures yes that's true and actually in light of the gospel it's wonderful But in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we're not mammals. We are mammals, but we're not animals. We are spiritual beings. We have something that other animals do not have. We have a link, a connection, a relationship with God. We are God-conscious individuals. That's what we are. All people are created with equal value. All people are created with diverse uniqueness. That's why the idea of intersectionality goes against the gospel and goes against the Bible. Scripture actually celebrates our uniqueness, celebrates our giftings and our abilities. The body of Christ is made up by diverse people. Not all of us are equal in our abilities. We're equal in our value. But we have different roles to play. Male and female have different roles to play. Age groups have different roles to play and so on. All people are loved by God as their creator and all people are responsible to God as their judge. Well, that's first. Secondly, we need to refocus on the real issues. So, first of all, truth is objective. Jesus said, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's not you will make up the truth, and then you will be free in your self created truth. That's not the way it is. It's not invented by people, no matter what color their skin is, it's not culturally constructed. Truth is objective, it's outside of ourselves. If you jump off a building, you are going to be introduced to the truth of gravity very quickly. It relates to reality, right? So we need to have those conversations with our friends, with our schoolmates, with our fellow employees, our colleagues. Secondly, sin is central, not whiteness or racism. Sin is central, Rod says, Christianity teaches that all men and women, not just the wealthy, the powerful, the straight, the white, and all other so-called oppressors, all men and women are sinners in need of the Redeemer. That's Romans 3. All have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory, his standard. We need to be, re- we need to be reminding people around us this all the time. We love to moralize. Right, We love to moralize and say this is what should be happening and if only people did this and so on. Yeah, but what about you? I love it when they turn it back on me. What about me? I'll tell you about me. You want to know? Do you want to know how far God had to bring me to show me myself and to show me there's nothing left to hide and to show me that Jesus on the cross meets every need that I have because sin is my issue like gk chesterton who when he was asked to write an article for a newspaper on what's wrong with the world responded to them and said dear sirs i am yours truly gk chesterton what's wrong with the world i am we need to remind our colleagues again that sin is central and it's in all of our hearts it doesn't matter our skin color next pride is pervasive the sin of racism in every direction is the sin of pride the belief that one person is superior to another. Well, this is all through biblical history, not so much in the racist ideas. Now, there were like the Samaritans and the Jews and so on, and uh, the history between them is pretty vicious. If you look at the intertestamental period, um, they were at each other and seeking to get each other uh, um, executed and crucified by the Romans and so on, and blaming it on each other. Uh, it, It was pretty messy. So when you see Jesus show up, Uh, to the Samaritan woman in John 4, uh, if you know the history that was behind the Jews and the Samaritans and how vicious their hatred was for each other and how prideful they were over each other, it's pretty radical what was going on, how countercultural that confrontation was. But pride is pervasive. So Christianity and the Christian gospel teaches humility, and that starts at the cross. You don't get to heaven by being a good person. You get to heaven by Jesus Christ being a good person, being perfect, and dying in your place. You get to heaven only after you have admitted that you can't get there on your own. You've done all the sinning. Jesus does all the saving. Pride is pervasive. It must be dealt with in each individual heart. Fourth, responsibility is crucial. The gospel does not give room to excuse sin no matter what victimhood status we can take on ourselves. I can never say, well, I sinned this way because my father sinned that way. Well, that might be true and it might might have led to my sin, but I'm still responsible for my sin. Because the gospel can interrupt that. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us when we are converted and brought to Christ. And that's called the new birth, regeneration. We are responsible for our sin and until we take responsibility for our attitudes, our actions, our choices, and so on, we will live in denial of the truth. Responsibility is crucial. So each of us is responsible for our own sin. Ezekiel said very clearly, uh, the Lord said, Behold, all, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. It's not the Son dying for the Father's sins, or the Father dying for the Son's sins. It's the soul who sins that will die. By the way, this is all under the umbrella. You want true justice? It's under the umbrella that God is the judge of all the earth. Right? That is where our worldview begins and ends. All right. Uh, Thirdly, true justice is biblical. Again, not enough time to look at this, but only again, here's here's Balcom saying our, our pursuit of justice must also be characterized by a pursuit of truth interestingly. And uh, how did how did the scriptures define this pursuit of truth? Well, first of all, multiple witnesses. Okay, Deuteronomy 19:15, God called for multiple witnesses. The second one was not scriptural, but it was rabbinical. So when you think about this when when the when the uh, Sanhedrin rushed Jesus through a courtroom scene during the night and then the next day and they were like, we need to get him executed before the feast and so on, before the Sabbath. What was this about? They were rushing the process. But they knew right well that rabbinical writings down through the generations had been very clear that the process must be delayed They actually added another restriction on the death penalty cases. A full day of fasting was to be observed by the council between the passing of a sentence and the execution of a criminal, right? That was from a book by John MacArthur, The Murder of Jesus. Cross-examination, Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right. Yeah, sounds pretty good. Until the other comes and examines him. Next, severity of false accusations. So, the severity of uh, if if you were to falsely accuse someone, and it has the death penalty attached to it, whatever the penalty was, if it was found out that you were falsely accusing them in a way to hurt them, you got the penalty, not them. So, if you were accusing them of murder or of rape or of adultery and so on, uh, a capital crime in the Old Testament. And it was found out that you were falsely accusing them. You are the one that was executed, not them. I would think that would hinder a lot of false accusations in court, right? And people would be more interested in objective truth than in just storytelling. True atonement is accomplished, folks. The idea, the the anti-racist gospel preaches that you must continually, continually do penance. You must continually work to atone for the sins of your fathers and your own sins and your own complicity and so on. When will that ever be done? Not really sure. You'll never quite accomplish it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that our atonement is already accomplished we don't live out good works now to accomplish our atonement. We do so now to reflect the goodness of the God who already has accomplished our atonement. Right? That's why we live out good works now. We want to reflect God, who he is, what he's like, his glory. Next, the freedom of forgiveness and reconciliation is so important in this issue. Paul said in Ephesians 4, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you." Forgiveness was key to reconciling with brothers and sisters in the church. Romans 12, Paul made it very clear, and I actually moved from it, but he basically said, don't avenge yourself. Here it is, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Forgiveness, not holding grudges, not being bitter. These are all aspects and results of the gospel of Jesus Christ when he transforms our hearts. What is the only response to dark history? Forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness. Not a perpetual, ongoing, this will never change until we completely destroy society. No, forgiveness. And that forgiveness can only be found in Christ. You know, Christ was the most abused, most um, oppressed individual in all of human history. He took all of the evil and all of the hatred of mankind. Add to that to the, the fact that mankind were created by him in the first place. And as he's giving them heartbeats and breaths in their lungs, they are just pouring on him their hatred. Can you imagine And what was he saying in response? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. It's incredibly powerful. And that's the gospel. Next, unity and diversity celebrates the gospel. I can't read the entire text, but Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how the gospel tears down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and brings all in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. Isn't that amazing? And we can celebrate our diversity today. Unity in diversity. It's a celebration of the gospel. Think of what's what's coming in the future. In Revelation, every tribe, every nation, every language are going to be around the throne and praising the Lamb because all of us share the same Savior. All of us are, share the same sinful responsibility, but we share the same redemption in Christ. Unity and diversity celebrates the gospel. And lastly, we are called to endure injustice while seeking justice. I think that's what's coming, folks. I think in all of this, we are going to endure injustice. We already are. Maybe not in this realm, but in others for speaking truth, we will endure injustice. We're called to. How do we do it? Peter tells us. Christ left us an example. 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see that again, that overarching, God is the judge. God is the judge. God is the judge. Justice belongs to him. And that justice is linked with truth. And truth brings freedom. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We are going to be called to endure injustice. How do we do it? By looking to Jesus. He endured injustice for us so that we can endure injustice for those around us that we love and want to see brought to Christ and ultimately to the family of God. All right, so that is it for tonight, folks. Thank you for sticking with me through all of this. It's a lot, again, a lot to take in. I hope you're not discouraged by all of the content as you go through. That's why I'm making sure you have handouts. The videos are going to be online. Uh, it's a lot to absorb. If you leave tonight and it's like, man, I only I learned about one thing, well, be encouraged by that. That's good. It's one thing you didn't know yesterday, so that's a good thing. Um, but as we're going through these, and you, you're going to have to take time to absorb the truth and let it sink in and maybe go back through these texts and read them and meditate on them and so on. It will transform you. It's God's word. It will transform you, and you will be more effective in the world around you.